begin making your way back to your seats and as you do grab your Bibles um, we're going to be looking this morning at Genesis 22 and uh, really the, the majority of the chapter and the name we're looking at this morning is Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh and uh, it's the idea or it's defined as my provider as we'll see in Genesis 22, that word used, and how God provided for Abraham and Isaac in that particular moment, um, but then also how uh, God promises to provide for us. And we're going to begin thinking through those things together. But as we look at the names of God, just as a reminder, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying, we're trying to learn about the character of God. We're trying to see more of who God is. We're trying to see his promises. We're trying to see the consistency of himself throughout all of history from the very beginning until when you get into the new beginnings that will be Revelation 21 and 22 and names reveal character. We don't use names so much like that today as once was but there was a time where names revealed character. Names almost had a, a, a prophetic sense in some regards with some of the individuals throughout the Old Testament and the names they were given. Very specifically, God's instructions to name this child that. It, it had a prophetic element to it um, because that name was going to reveal character. And God's names reveal his character. God's names also reveal action. In Jehovah Jireh, we see it defined as the Lord provides. There's an action there. There's an action there. There's an action that's been revealed. And what we're trying to do in looking at the action is, is, not, is not make the conclusion that everything God did in the Old Testament, He will do again in the New. I, I think that's actually a, an error theologically to conclude that. But the actions of God roll back up to his character. And they as well show us something about who God is. And so we're going to think about that specifically as we look at the scene of Abraham and Isaac. And what God does and what he tells Abraham to do. And how you and I interact with that. But God's names reveal his actions. So over the last couple weeks we looked at Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And that name was, was actually was more technically an altar that was named the Lord is peace. And it happened in the scene of Gideon being commissioned by the Lord to go battle the Midianites and the Amalekites. Last week we looked at two different names, Jehovah Sabaoth, 
God is our warrior and Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Both of those coming in the context of war. And you see actions that reveal character. This morning, Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, comes in the context of Abraham and Isaac in Mount Moriah. Thirdly, what we're trying to get our minds wrapped around together is that God's names are refuge and power. God's names are refuge and power. And the psalmists in particular tell us that there is protection, there is strength, there is provision in the names of God. And as you just even look at the Psalms, we're going to dig a little bit deeper this coming summer into the Psalms again together. And as we look at those Psalms, we're going to, we're going to see the psalmist using names of God. Not, not so much defining them, but using them and what's communicated through them is this idea of refuge and power. When we get to the New Testament, that becomes even more explicitly clear in the person and work of Jesus. For there's no other name given among men by which salvation is found. That Jesus is the name that's higher than any other name. And at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That there's something about the name. I think it was the Gaithers that wrote that. His name is refuge and power, and you and I, in learning the names of God and learning more of the character of God, can follow the example of the psalmist in drawing near to him, both in celebration, perhaps in, in, in memory and in, in praise for what he has done, but also in the moments of trial, in the moments of difficulty. And so that's what we're trying to get our minds wrapped around here together this morning. And so we'll look at Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh from Genesis 22. And uh, what I want to do, kind of how I want to go through this this morning, is we'll obviously look at the text. But I want us to leave some time on the back side and, and spend some time together to just think about um, how, how this kind of works itself out in our lives. And I'll just be fully transparent and upfront with you that the application point this morning is no different than it was last week and it's no different than it was the week before. Um, that's in part because I had thought that these three names were just going to be one sermon and there was no way that that was going to happen. Um, and so we've got three weeks now, but I want us to flesh through those ideas, those takeaways of how you and I, in thinking about the character of God as our provider, how does that flesh itself out? in our lives. And so I want us to leave time there and think through that because this isn't just conceptual. And if we're not careful, and I know if I'm not careful, it, it can just kind of stay at that level. I want us to get a little bit more on the ground in terms of how this and the character of God that's revealed can flesh itself out in our daily lives. So before we go any further, let's pray Let's just think through then and go before the Lord and ask him to be gracious to us. God, we are grateful for your provision. God, and even the, the front side of looking at how you provide, we acknowledge your provision. All that we need, your hand has provided. 
And you are faithful. You have, you have promised to provide what it is that we need. God, we recognize that sometimes we define needs and wants very similarly. And so God, help us to not, to not conclude wrongly that you promise to provide every want we have, but every need we have. God, you're our provider. And we see that in the story of Abraham and Isaac. We see how that story points us forward to another only son that would sacrifice his life. And so God, we ask that you'd help us to understand these things. That you'd give us eyes to see that we might see clearly. Give us ears to hear what it is you want to tell us. And God, we pray that you might help us this morning see more of Jesus. And so to that end, we, we just invite your spirit to come and do the work in us individually and in us collectively that only he can do. And as Jesus promised, the spirit would come and he would glorify the Son, and so God, help us to see more of Jesus and your love for us in him. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, I hope you're in Genesis 22. Let's go to the beginning. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 14, and we'll do so just kind of one after the other. I'll give a few comments here and there. Um, but the, the name Jaira, like the last two weeks, is, is again technically a place. It's not necessarily a name, although it comes from the character of God. And we're going to see this word Jaira used several times throughout Genesis 22 regarding what the Lord was going to do because of what his character is. And so at the end of Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14, we see Abraham names the altar where they're at, or maybe more broadly, Mount Moriah, which is where they're at, as the Lord provides. And so in the beginning, we see in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And in verse 3 we see Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. So if we're honest, and for those of us that are parents, this is, this is a pretty, it's pretty tragic, pretty horrendous type of scene and scenario to imagine and picture yourself in, in the fact that God has told Abraham to take the life of his son and offer his son as a sacrifice. And this is just one of those moments that I want to just remind us that we, we need to be careful in not over-applying the actions of God. 
Okay, because there is a line of, of, of thought and theological conclusions that say, well, all God's actions in the Old Testament um, are still able and all for today to be done. And to that I'd say, no, I don't think so. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He acts in different ways, however, throughout redemptive history. That phrase being just a a way to summarize what God's doing from beginning to end in redeeming mankind. And so we just need to be careful that when we see God giving Abraham this command to go sacrifice his son Isaac, that you and I don't somehow find ourselves walking away this morning with the takeaway that God has told us to go and sacrifice one of our children. It's very similar to what we thought about last week in the battle. We're not looking for an Amalekite to beat up after the service this morning, even though God gave those instructions to Israel. We've got to think about these things in context, and we've got to think about them on the grand scheme of things throughout all of redemptive history and it's God's character that we're most interested in seeing because that's what doesn't change and if you leave here this morning and you think that God's wanting you to go sacrifice your children you're probably going to end up in jail if you try to follow that through but that is the kind of thinking that lands you like in a group of people drinking Kool-Aid together at the end Um, and we want to avoid that as well. God as our provider that was what we see on display. And you and I have the benefit of some New Testament verses that help us unpack a little bit more of perhaps what was in Abraham's mind as well. And it's in Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19 that that author in Hebrews gives us kind of the, the insider information into the thinking of Abraham. And so we see that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author's there telling us that, 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 that God almost boxed himself in from the perspective of Abraham. That here Isaac was the one whom the promises of many descendants and a a nation was going to come through. But then God tests Abraham and gives him this unthinkable command to go and sacrifice his son. And it was was a double whammy. It was his his son, but then it was also the, the seed and the line and the way those promises were to be fulfilled. But we see Abraham's response. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We get the benefit of this type of information helping us unpack and stepping into a little bit of the thought process in Abraham's mind. But we see in Genesis 22 This scene continuing to play itself out. On the third day of the journey, verse 4, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham, verse 5, said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together, and Isaac said to his father, My father, 
And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they both went together. That word provide is the word gyra. It's the first time in this passage that we see that word used. The word gyra, most simply defined, is actually seize. It's a word that means eyesight. It's a word that refers to just the physical act of seeing. And, and I don't know if any of your translations have this, but it would not be inappropriate for that part of verse 8 to be interpreted or translated as God will see for himself. But we get the word provide because this is not just the idea of the ability to see. It's the idea of seeing and supplying. And in that sense, this word gyra, this name gyra is very similar to El Roy, the God who watches over me. Two different names for God, but very similar in their definition and certainly very, very similar in the characteristic of God that he is revealing to us. And this word gyra is used uh, almost 1,300 times throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament. And it's just oftentimes translated as see. It first shows up in Genesis chapter 1 verse 4. And God saw. There it is. There's the word gyra. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from darkness. And you can see that word repeated throughout those beginning verses in that first chapter of Genesis. And there's this parallelism throughout that entire chapter where God says something and then God sees what he did and then God makes a declaration of it that it was good. It's the word gyra. It just it's defined most simply as that. The word Moriah that shows up in our passage, you saw it in chapter 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land Moriah. The word Moriah comes from the same root word as gyra. The idea of sight is all throughout this entire passage. But it's not just distant sight. It's not just the ability to see what is far more at the heart of this name for God and what he's revealing to us about himself is that he doesn't just see. He sees and supplies. And there's this, there's this theory, you could call it rightly a philosophy of who God is. It's called deism. And it's this idea that God, God is there, but he's distant. And he, he can see us, but he's not involved. He's not, he's not in, in the details of our lives. He's just kind of this watchmaker is often the illustration used to refer to that. And so a watchmaker makes the watch, and he might wind the watch up, and then he can stand back and he can watch his creation tick away and perform in the way that he had designed for it to perform. And that's this idea of deism. And there was a really popular Christmas song that came out, I don't know, a decade, two decades ago, from a distance. 
And the, the whole refrain of that song was that God is watching us from a distance. And, and it, it gave a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings at Christmas time about how, yeah, there's a God that's there. And, and he, he is. He's watching generically over us. And nothing could be further from the truth regarding who God is as the Bible reveals him to be. That he is not watching us from a distance. Rather, he is deeply and intricately involved in the details of our lives. And nothing escapes his attention. Nothing escapes his provision. Nothing escapes his sovereignty. That's the idea of Jireh. That God sees and supplies. And here Abram, Abraham... In verse 8, when asked this question by his son, it's believed Isaac is probably a, a young boy, a teenager. I mean, he's carrying the firewood, old enough to have this conversation. He's probably older than five. I, depending on how many logs I gave Tucker, he could carry some. Not a lot. But Abraham's having this conversation, and Isaac says, hey, Dad, we, we, we got the fire, we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God's going to see. God's going to supply. God's going to provide. And in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, that would be Mount Moriah, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound up his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's outside of our scope this morning, but just think about the trust Isaac had in his dad. I mean, Abraham's pushing 100 years old at this point. Isaac's probably getting close to the prime of his life. It might not have taken much for him to overpower his dad. But then Abram, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, again, I think that's a, pre, a pre-incarnate Jesus showing up called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, (laughs) here am I. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. And Abraham lifted his eyes up and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham took the ram, and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, now Moses here is a bit of a historian, not so much the eyewitness. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. We see the word Jireh show up two more times. It shows up in verse 8 here, as we have said, it shows up again in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place. That place was Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide. And as it is said today, Moses gives us the historical biographer's account. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This mount, this mountain, had tremendous significance. And and if you've been around church circles for any period of time, you've probably heard this scene and this 
set of characters be explained as a reference looking forward to Jesus and what God would do. And all of that is absolutely true. And the location is just as significant as the characters. So we know that Abraham's the father of many nations, as the genealogies tell us in the beginning of the gospel narratives, that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham, that he comes from Isaac, who's the son and child of the promise, that all of that genealogy of Jesus' rightful claim biologically to the throne comes through these gentlemen. They absolutely point forward to Christ. The scene of Abraham being called to lay down his one and only son is is absolutely something that points us forward to when Jesus, as the one and only son, would lay his life down. But the mountain is just as significant. And the name of the mountain, again, is the Lord will provide. It's Moriah. It was that name before Abraham even got there. God told him, go to the land of Moriah, and I'm going to tell you where I want you to go. And they then ascended the mountain in Moriah, Moriah being defined as the Lord will provide. Part of what's significant in the geography of the location is what would then happen on that mountain years later. And we get a glimpse of it in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 and the significance begins to emerge for us that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Solomon, this is him building the temple. The very place where God instructed Abraham to take Isaac to lay him down as a sacrifice is the very place that Solomon purchased and began constructing the temple mount on is the very place where the temple stood and temple sacrifices were taking place. It's the very place that Jesus would have walked. It's the very place where Jesus overturned the tables and took issue with those profiting and pilfering the poor in the temple courts. And it's not far from the very place where Jesus himself would lay down on the cross. This is the temple. This is the temple in Jerusalem. It's partly still standing today. And there is tremendous significance, not just in the characters, but also in the location. And this is a foreshadowing account of what Jesus would do. One scholar said this, On Mount Moriah, Yahweh was teaching Abraham what he himself was prepared to provide. He was teaching the awful cost to himself of the provision of the sacrifice for sin. And this pointed forward to a day when God's one and only Son would die on the cross for our sins. To provide our salvation. And I don't want to get too technical with you here. But I do want to just point out that that last word provided at the end of that sentence. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That word is written in such a way 
that it means that God will both supply what is needed and receive what has been supplied. So I want to try to say that another way, okay? God required, if you will, Abraham to lay down Isaac. He was going to receive that as a sacrifice. His provision of the ram was both supplying what Abraham needed and satisfying what he himself had commanded and demanded. Let's think about that as it gets to the cross. The wages of sin is death. What is required for our sin is death. And it actually is, it is, a, it is a compromise to the character of God if he somehow just waves his hands and says, it's not that big of a deal. And what you have and what Jesus did was this massive declaration by God that sin is absolutely a big deal. Like he's not just somehow going, my bad, I made too big out of deal out of that back in the garden. You guys are cool, just go. Now what Jesus does on the cross is this massive declaration that sin matters. And it massively matters. And the wages of sin, what's required to satisfy God's holy and righteous wrath against those who have sinned is death. And what God does in Jesus is he sees our need, he supplies what we need, and he satisfies himself by what he supplied. And that's what he does with the ram. He sees Abraham's need. They don't have a ram. They don't have a lamb. They got nothing. Isaac's there. He sees it. But then he supplies them what it is that they need, this animal. And by that supplication, satisfies the command that he had given. You guys tracking with that? It's this, it's this beautiful picture of the gospel in Genesis 22. And it's a beautiful just outworking of what Jesus did for us. Where God saw our need and sent the Son, because of his love for us, to provide for our need, and then satisfies himself by what he supplies. Like God's not satisfied because you and I have anything to bring to the table. God is satisfied by what he brought to the table on our behalf, and then asks us in faith to go, okay, that's what you want. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has provided for us what could not be supplied by us, but yet what he required of us. Let me say that again. The good news of the gospel is that 
in Jesus Christ. God has provided for us what could not be supplied by us, and yet what he required of us. And when we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, we receive that eternal life, that gift of salvation because of what Christ has done. We don't bring our awesomeness to the table and go, hey God, check out who I am. Now Jesus actually says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize that they need what only I can provide. So we sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. These lyrics that it's just, it's only in Christ that the provision we need is supplied for. That's what we see on display in what God did with and through and for Abraham and Isaac. The greatest provision God has provided for us is his son and the gift of eternal life. And that eternal life is received through believing in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone to be that provision we need. But from there, God also promises to provide other things. And in Romans 8, we are, we, are, we are given this picture of, well, if the cross is true, then what about everything else? And the Apostle Paul answers that question. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument made from the greater to the lesser. Do you see it? If the cross is true and the greatest need you had has been provided for, what about all the little things that then you have? Those kind of seem trivial or, or, or more like, duh, yeah, of course he's going to do that type of moments because he gave you his son. Why would he not or how could he not also Make provision for everything else that you need in life. And again, we got to be careful that we don't define our wants as something of our needs. Because I can come up with a, a whole set of things that are probably a whole lot more in the want category than the need category. And God's not promised to give me my wants. But he has promised to graciously give us all things and provide for our needs. Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And here's where, here's where we, we begin to see Jehovah Jireh come out of maybe the concept and even the massive provision of eternal life and begin to work its way maybe a little bit closer to what you and I are going to do tomorrow and the day after. And I don't want to somehow give you the the indicator that like the eternal life component's not important. That's where this all begins. 
But God doesn't just supply us eternal life. He doesn't just give us salvation and then walk out. He's there supplying and providing and graciously giving all things that we need. And so it's in that regard when we just begin to then ask the question, okay, how do we, how do we walk that? Like, how do we receive that? How do we navigate that? And the fact that, you know, the 40 or 50 of us, if not more, in this room have a completely unique set of needs. Perhaps even within families. The needs of a husband are different than the needs of the spouse and the the challenges that we navigate. And how do we do that? And some of them are financial some of them are relational. Some of them are emotional. Some of them have involved your kids. And I mean, there's just significant needs. Like, how do we walk through that? And here's where our, our application point is just no different than it was the last two weeks. It's back to those words, trust and obey. Trust and obey. We talked about that as being how you and I receive peace from God eternally, can receive circumstantial peace from God and what it is that we're navigating, but then also work out this command to be peacemakers, trust and obey. We thought about that in regards to Jehovah Nissi and Yahweh Sabaoth and how we're, we're approaching the battles spiritually that we face with those two words. And the same is true with just the idea of God's provision, trust and obey. And and here's where just the, the, the application is no different than what you'd expect to find in church. Like, you spend time hearing from God and reading his word. And you spend time in prayer. God's word has been rightly described as us hearing from God. And prayer has been rightly described as us speaking to God. And God begins to meet us in his word. He begins to meet us in our moments of prayer. But there's another component to that, and we touched on it last week, and I want to circle back to it. It's this, it's this idea of fellowship with one another. And that we're, we're bound to each other, and we're blessed by one another, and oftentimes... In my life, and I think the scriptures play this out and gives us good reason to conclude this, that God provides for us through the people he has placed around us. Sometimes that provision's financial. I'm not necessarily saying that it always has to be that way, but sometimes it's just that shoulder to lean against. It's that person in your life to encourage you to not give up, to remind you of God's faithfulness in the past, to remind you of his promises for your life still, that there is something about seeing flesh and bone in front of you that you can talk to, that you can cry with, that you can celebrate with, that God has given us and his provision for us is oftentimes made through the people he has placed us in and around. And that's part of why we just keep coming back to this question of when you come on Sunday mornings, who, who are you trying to bless? Who are you trying to serve? Who are you trying to build up? Who are you trying to give to? It's not wrong to ask the question about how you're receiving 
But that's only half the question. And in the beginning of February, when the Fretzes were welcomed into membership, those were the two questions we asked. What are you guys looking to give? And what are you looking to receive? Because God has called us to do that in one another's lives. He has gifted us to do that in one another's lives. And that is one of the main ways he provides for us. So are we, are we taking God at his word? That time in his word is actually that important, hearing from him. Are we taking God at his word, that spending time praying to him? Not, not just this idea that like there's that guy in the clouds somewhere that I'm speaking to, but like the, the reality of the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you The God who has promised to provide graciously all things to you. This isn't like an ethereal thing. We believe what the Bible says, like this is relational, and that's where God meets us as a relational God. And then he provides us with relationships here. We see that imaged, illustrated, And what Moses and Aaron and Hur did last week. And it's such that picture of Moses was was failing in his own strength. And Aaron and Hur were there to lift his arms up. And as his arms stayed up, the battle went in Israel's favor. I think similarly, God places people in our lives to support and strengthen us when we fail in our own strength. Trust is the first idea. Do we trust God in his word? Do we trust that God, God, God is a relational God waiting to hear from us? He wants us to draw near to him, that he's provided to us people. And then the other way I think we walk in This idea of just kind of the day-to-day, how does God provide me? How do we take Jehovah Jireh as this massive concept and the character of God revealed and and kind of work it out? I I think that other aspect of that is the, the obeying of all that we know the obeying of all that we know, that when when God has said something, that we are willing to walk in obedience to that. We're not gonna do it ever perfectly. The obeying of all that we know. And God meets us in providing for us as we are obedient to him. And I know a couple weeks ago we hit on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as another example of that. And it's a good example for that. That these guys were unwilling to compromise in what they knew God had told them to not compromise on. There would be no other gods before him and they were unwilling to bow down. They were willing to obey all that they knew even if it cost them their lives. And they had concluded that even if God did not spare their lives, they still weren't going to do it. They recognized he could. But their conclusion in Nebuchadnezzar was, hey, even if God doesn't, like we're still not bowing down to you. It was a willingness to obey. 
And that's the context that this Philippians 4.19 comes through. And Paul talking about how the Philippians had given him a gift and how he was learning to be content in all circumstances, whether he was in need, whether he perhaps had great, great provision. And he's writing this from jail. And he's saying, look, my God's going to supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. And he writes that because they had given gifts to supply for his needs. And God's provision for us is often through the people he places us around. He is our provider. He has done so eternally. He has provided for us what could not be supplied by us, yet what was required of us. And he has promised to supply us with everything that we need because of his love for us. And as Kevin read earlier this morning, he has already given us all things we need for life and godliness. He is our provider. Let's pray. Well, God, we pray that you would help us draw near to you in our time of need as you command us to do, that we may find the grace and mercy that we need. You tell us in Hebrews 4 that you will provide grace and mercy for us as we draw near to your throne in our time of need. and God, the longer I live, the more I am just confronted with the reality that those needs are daily needs. They're hourly needs. They're, they're minute needs. They're second needs. God, we thank you for your promise to provide for us what it is that we need, regardless of what it is that we are facing. God, help us to trust in you and obey all we know. And we cast our mind to who you are and what it is that you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.